And in this series, we're going to be exploring over 12 weeks a number of different world religions. We're going to spend weeks studying Judaism, and then we'll move into Christianity. We'll get into Islam following Christianity because chronologically in time, that's kind of how those religions come about. Then we're going to talk about Hinduism and Buddhism, spend a week on Taoism even, and I hope to wrap up by looking at some of the indigenous faiths around the world and maybe introducing you guys to some new things over the next few months. And my hope isn't that you all become Jewish or that you become Hindus or that you start practicing an indigenous faith, but my hope is that you, as Morgan pointed out, can stretch yourself to find truth that maybe is bigger than it feels to you right now. When I was a kid, my grandparents, my mother's parents, lived not too far from here, um, kind of between our church and the campus of Missouri State University. And my parents were so young when I was born. Uh, If you've been young when you had kids, you kind of know how this works. I spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house being watched by uh, my aunt or by my grandmother uh, a lot of the times. And my grandparents moved from that house when I was still young. I was driving past that house. It's over on Fairway Terrace. And it's a very simple uh, one-car garage, like three very small bedrooms, one very small bathroom, probably built in the 1930s, 1920s. And I drove past there, and I, I just, the emotion that came over me sitting in my car outside of this house, looking at this place that had housed memories for my grandparents and my aunt and my uncle and my mother and for me and even my dad, all these things that happened to me as a kid and this place that was special to the people who shaped me. So I walked up to the door, and I actually knocked on the door, Shy, and I was like, hey, are you guys home? And they were like, yeah, of course we're home. We answered the door. And I told them that my grandparents used to live there, and they were like, come on in, come on in. And so I got to walk in, and the experience of walking into this space and revisiting where I came from, right, where I was raised, it was kind of overwhelming. Some of you have probably done this. Some of you probably still have parents who live in the house where you were raised. Some of you may live in the house where you were raised. This is what we're doing in this series for the next two weeks. We are going back to the house where we were raised, where our faith started Christianity has its roots in Judaism, and I think that you can really only understand the teachings of Christ in their context and totality if you understand who he is, and who he is is a Jew. And so we start our series this week with Judaism in our message series called Truth Has No Boundaries. There it is, right there. That's the Hebrew for it underneath, and the Star of David. So I had the opportunity to visit with Rabbi Barbara Block, who is the rabbi at our local temple, Temple Israel, um, on kind of the, I guess it's the east side of town, 
And I asked her when we sat down and we talked for like an hour and a half the other night, but I asked her as part of these questions, what is Judaism? How do you explain to people what Judaism is when they ask you or when you're talking about it? And I have some answers from her tonight that I'm going to share with you, some videos that I'm going to share, because I think it's probably information that at times is really best shared by her. And I have another friend who's going to share with us on video. But here's the answer that Barbara Block gave me, Rabbi Barbara Block gave me last week. I am Rabbi Barbara Block, and I am the rabbi of Congregation Hot Temple Israel in Springfield. When you have people who approach you in different settings and want to know what Judaism is, how do you describe the faith to people? Ah, interesting to describe the faith because you just uh, defined it as a faith. And it is a faith. And when you say Judaism, Judaism is a faith that's also a culture and a way of life. And it's actually a set of cultures related. It is um, Mordecai Kaplan wrote a book called Judaism as a Civilization back in the 1930s. And he saw Judaism primarily as a civilization. The religion was a part of that civilization. So what is Judaism? Well, uniquely, Judaism is all of those things, all of these things. Judaism is an ethnicity. Some people would say it's a race. It's a religion. It's a culture. And it's a legal tradition. It is a culture and a tradition and a religion that has lasted for thousands of years. And I don't think Rabbi Block is um, understating it when she says that it is a civilization. So when you hear from Rabbi Block, one of the things you have to understand is, of course, she's a teacher at a temple. But much like Christianity, when you talk about Judaism as a religion, you'll find that there are people practicing this religion in a lot of different ways. And so one of the things that's hard for some people to understand is how do Jews worship? How do they interpret the Bible? And we're going to talk about that a little bit. One of the things I want you to know is that when you hear from Rabbi Block, she is someone who comes from a Reformed tradition. And so anyone else, they could probably give you a set of movements that would look a little bit different than this. But in North America, I think this is a fairly descriptive way of thinking about kind of the movements of Judaism. Orthodox Jews would be people who practice Judaism by the letter of the law, right? Who read the book and perhaps like fundamentalism in Christianity would take a very literal interpretation to that book. Conservative Jews are often described as a kind of middle ground before, be, between reform and orthodox. So a Jewish tradition that still holds tightly to a lot of traditional values and interpretation, hermeneutics and traditions, but is also more open 
to a kind of progressive or modern theology. And then the Reformed Jewish tradition is one that is probably best thought of and would be described, say, if you were in Europe, as a progressive or more liberal tradition. But unique to the Jewish faith is the opportunity um, or the occurrence of being a secular Jew, which would be someone who's born Jewish but doesn't really practice the faith. And so you're born into a Jewish family, like you might be born into a family that practices Christianity, but because Judaism is also, also an ethnicity and a culture, you can be someone who doesn't practice the religion, but still be considered part of that community. So I give you this framework so that you'll understand, number one, Rabbi Block, when she speaks, speaks from the reform movement, and that's important to know. But I also give you this just so you have a framework for understanding the religion as we get deeper into it. My goal tonight is actually, and I struggled with this all week, to talk to you about the history of the Jewish tradition and to save most of our discussion about the theology. Theology is different than Christianity and how it's very similar to Christianity next week because when we were scrapping through this this week, I told Cheyenne, I'm like, I need like the whole year to do this. I don't know how I'm going to do 4,000 years in two weeks, but we're going to give it a shot. So here's where I think you should start if you're going to talk about the history and tie it to the religious practice of Judaism. I made a little chart. Actually, I drew out this chart and then Whitney made it pretty. She did all the hard work. So if you start with the identity of Jewish people, if you look at the book of Genesis, you probably have to start with Adam and Eve. And there's a reason that I have dots down to Noah, because if you treat Adam and Eve, even if you think of Adam and Eve as um, a metaphor for the beginning of creation, or if you think of it as something that's literal, that literally there was an Adam and Eve, what the Bible describes for us is that from the point of creation, we get to a point in the line of descendants that leads us to the story of Noah. Noah is important for lots of reasons in Genesis and to the Judaic tradition. But one of the reasons I have him on here is because Noah has a son, Shem. And I have Shem on here as Noah's son because I want to make the point that when you anti-Semite, that's where that term comes from. So Semitic tradition is a word that derives from Shem, a descendant of Noah. And what we know, or at least what we're told from the Bible, is that Shem eventually is a patriarch in the line of people that leads to the birth of Abraham. All of these people are important in the Jewish tradition. But when you get to Abraham, the story really starts to unfold. There are three uh, traditions that come from the line of Abraham. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. If you follow the line of this family tree to the right side of the page, you see that Abraham has two kids. Well, he has more than two kids. But there are two kids we're going to talk about here. Ishmael and Isaac, because they play a pivotal role in the development of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, 
Actually, originally his name was Abram and it was Sarai. They changed their names to Abraham and Sarah later. But I'm calling him Abraham for now. You can call him Abram. Abraham has a son, Ishmael, but he has that son through his wife's handmaiden because Abraham and Sarah were older at the time that Ishmael was born. And they were worried that Abraham would not be able to continue his family through Sarah. So Hagar and Abraham have Ishmael, but then Abraham and Sarah do end up getting pregnant, and they have a son, Isaac, who ends up giving birth down the line to a child by the name of Jacob. And I'm not going to get into all of the family details here because I'm already running behind. But Jacob ends up changing his name to Israel, stay with me, in a story that describes him wrestling with God. And some people will say he's wrestling with an angel of God. Some people have a different interpretation. But generally speaking, the line of Abraham, Judaism, and Christianity goes through Isaac, then to Jacob, Israel. This is where the name or the nation of Israel comes from. And then to Joseph. So all these people are important, and many more people are important that I'm leaving out. But I leave it at Joseph because Joseph is going to play a pivotal role in how we find our next major player in the history of Judaism. Abraham and Sarah. This is where we start because Abraham and God are the original deal makers in what becomes Judaism. Abraham and God find each other, or maybe more appropriately, I should say, God finds Abraham, and God and Abraham reach an agreement. Abraham has been focusing on the idea in a time in the world where people worshipped many idols and many gods, that you should only worship one God. And arguably, Abraham thinks that there is only one God, although that's somewhat subject to debate. But he definitely thinks you should only worship one God. And he enters into a spiritual relationship with this one God. And as part of this relationship, this one God tells Abraham, you're going to have to leave your home. And I've put this as occurring around 2000 BCE, you will see some different dates for when this might actually occur. Some people will bookmark this a few hundred years earlier than 2000 BC. I'm going to try to keep our math easy for us tonight, actually. The call between Abraham and God occurs, you can see this in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and I'm going to turn around to read it. It says, The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. And so, notably, Abraham and Sarah are asked to leave their home, to give up what they knew, and to try something different with this one God. Abraham and God are truly in a ride-or-die situation. 
You know what I'm saying? This meme stands out to me. All, all you need is that one person who's going to be your ride or die. But you're going to also find out that through this story, Abraham and others who inherit this covenant are kind of like, well, I'm not exactly ride or die. Like, I have questions. I need to know where are we going. Why do I have to die? Can we stop and get food? Within the Jewish tradition, there are questions asked. And even though the Jewish people maintain a steadfast relationship with God, you will see that at times they have questions of God, that they, like Jacob, and the story that leads to the changing of his name, sometimes wrestle with God. This is the area where Abraham is leaving. If you look at this map, you can tell a little bit about where I'm talking about. This is what most of us just know as the Middle East. You can see a map of Saudi Arabia, and on the right side of the map, in the corner of that green space, which is Mesopotamia, you see the land of Ur. You are. Now, some people will say that the land where Abraham was from was actually a little bit further north, but a lot of people think it's right there. In any event, what God asks Abraham to basically travel from Ur to the land of Canaan, which is going to be the land that he inherits. Now, I want to go back to this family tree because remember, Abraham starts all of this. Abraham has kids who have kids who have kids. When we get to Joseph, Joseph is actually sold into, well, slavery. He ends up in Egypt, and in Egypt, Joseph makes a pretty good name for himself. This migration of people of the Semitic tradition of the line of Abraham and Isaac finding their way into Egypt is often used to explain why the Egyptian people are in Egypt and how they come to be described as slaves in the Bible in Egypt. This leads us to our next major player in the line of people that are the story of the Jewish tradition. And that's Moses. See, Moses grows up in Egypt under some unique circumstances. Most of you know the story of Moses. But Moses, as a young man, ends up killing someone and actually leaving and leaves Egypt for a bit. There are a couple of things that stand out about Moses. He comes back after leaving Egypt because God asks him to return and free the Jewish people who are slaves in Egypt. This leads to what most of us know as the Egyptian exodus. So this exodus is the time in which Moses returns and leads the Jewish people out of slavery in Egypt. This, of course, is the dramatic story of the parting of the Red Sea. And the purpose for leaving Egypt is, of course, to free the Jewish people. But the purpose in the Bible is also to return to the land that God had promised Abraham his people would be able to live in and prosper in. Now, there's something very important that happens along this journey and through the involvement of Moses, and that's the development of Mosaic law. Mosaic law is fundamental to how Christians and Jews begin their journey with God. And basically what happens is, as Moses is returning with people to the land of Canaan, 
he has a series of encounters with God. Now, if you are an Orthodox Jew, you would probably be um, more inclined to interpret that conversation as one in which God literally says things to Moses, and Moses writes them down, and those are the laws that we see in the Bible. If you're a Reformed Jew, you would have a more progressive understanding of what that conversation may have meant. In fact, in Exodus, the description of these communications between God and Moses are are often situations where God is described as speaking through thunder or speaking through fire. And so there's a question. When Moses is communicating, when Moses is listening, when Moses is receiving these words, the Spirit from God, Is he literally hearing word for word what God is saying? Or is he interpreting things that he's hearing? And of course, nobody really knows the answer to that. And that leads to different approaches in interpreting Mosaic law. Mosaic law is the foundation for the rules that Jews follow. And you can see right here in Exodus chapter 3, This is the description for when God comes to Moses and says, I want you to go back. Exodus 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames from within a bush. Moses thought the bush was on fire, but it did not burn up. Moses investigates further. And that's when this conversation pursues. And it leads to this, the first five books of our Bible. And when I say our, I mean the Jewish Bible, the Tanakh, and the Old Testament, the Christian Bible. All five of these books are shared in common. In fact, not only are all five of these books shared in common by Christians and Jews, the Tanakh, which is the Jewish Bible, and the Old Testament of the Christian Hebrew Bible are basically the same. You have some reverse order. The prophets are mixed around a little bit. But those books, those writings, really are shared between the two faiths. Because this beginning of a communication between God and the Jewish people where God says, look, I want you to do this and I don't want you to do that, becomes so fundamental to the life of Jews. I went back to Rabbi Block and I asked her, can you tell us a little bit about how, at least in the Reformed tradition, people interpret the law, both the Torah and other writings within the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible? And here's what she told me. For Christianity, Jesus and the life of Jesus, as as told, especially in the Gospels and in the remaining books of the New Testament, is central. For us, Torah is central. The teachings uh, that are in the five books of Moses and then in the rest of the Hebrew Bible and in later Jewish writings, Christians sometimes identify Judaism with the Hebrew Bible. And... The Hebrew Bible is our foundation, and I don't follow 
biblical religion. We no longer sacrifice animals. There are parts of it that I do. Take the values behind what's written in the Bible through the interpretations of later rabbis and sages and, and into our own times and find the wisdom for our age. And there, there are things in our scriptures that have troubled rabbis through the ages. And then the richness comes in that struggle and how can we see this? How do we reconcile it? And sometimes, honestly, there are things which we look at, an Orthodox Jew wouldn't, but which, which in my tradition, we might look at and say, that writing was a product of its times and we see things differently. And we see our scriptures in my tradition. First off, we see our scriptures as written by humans over a period of time, uh, divinely inspired, but also a product of their cultural times. And I look at those scriptures as the unfolding of human understanding of the divine and our relationship with the divine. I do not at all see the stories, particularly in the first four books, five books, as historical. Okay, I'm going to confess something. I don't want to appropriate that message, but it sounds very venue to, to, to me. I told, I told Rabbi Block that. Um, I was a little surprised at how Rabbi Block approached the Torah and how she used the Torah and how she taught from the Torah. Um, I was intrigued. I was kind of impressed, quite honestly. And after that conversation... I went to a young friend of mine, Anna Weiner, who is a product of Kickapoo High School and is now attending college out west in San Francisco. Um, but I know that Anna attended the temple, Israel, and I was curious what a, what a young person would say about the role of Scripture, the Torah, and other writings in her life and how she thought it was important or maybe thought it was an impediment but how she interpreted that and applied that. I want to share this video with you of Anna because I think it's particularly good. It's about three minutes long, so give her some space to kind of explain how, as a young Jewish woman, she has used these teachings. Hello, my name is Anna Weiner. I'm 20 years old, and I was raised here in Springfield, Missouri, and I attended Temple Israel for the entirety of my childhood. One of the most common questions that I get about Judaism is about the dietary laws, which is called kosher, and that usually comes in the form of, do you eat pork? And no, I do not eat pork. And I also follow more of the kosher laws than just the prohibition on pork products. I also don't eat meat and cheese together, so that means no cheeseburgers, um, no having a turkey sandwich with cheese on it or mayonnaise on it. Uh, I also don't eat any seafood that doesn't have scales on it. That's part of the kosher rules. So that means you can't have shark or calamari or shrimp, uh, crab, anything of that nature. And the reason I do it is not just because some rabbis 2,000 years ago told me to do so um, <laughs> or because I don't like pigs, uh, but because it's important to follow the traditions of your people. And in addition, it's also important to learn how to sacrifice 
things that you may not understand the reason for sacrificing. So for instance, um, I didn't understand why my parents wanted me to be home before midnight whenever I first got my car when I was 16. And now that I'm older, I understand why. But it was it's important to do what your parents ask of you, even if you don't understand why you're sacrificing what you want. Um, and the same goes for other figures of authority that I've had in my life that were well-intended and it was important just to do what they wanted, even if I didn't understand um, why they wanted me to do it or I didn't think their reasons were good enough. So kosher is like a way of practicing for giving up things that you may want uh, because someone you love or something you love is more important than the uh, short-term gratification of something like eating a cheeseburger. I also think it's important to talk about some of the spiritual aspects of Judaism that are kind of inaccessible to people who don't know Hebrew. <laughs> so uh, what I think is the most important concept is called pikuach nefesh, which means the sanctity of the soul. So that is most commonly invoked in the idea that you can break any rule to save a life. Um, but it also is a lot more broad than that and includes the idea that humans have dignity. So in the beginning of Genesis, there's the idea that God breathed life into the dust and that's what made humanity and that that breath is the human dignity and that's what makes us made in the image of God, which in Hebrew is B'Tselem Elohim. Uh, and so you can't, you can't just give up on people and you can't hurt them without having punishment for doing so. And how that applies to my daily life is I chose to take on teaching students with intellectual and learning disabilities at my synagogue uh, because of the idea of pikuach nefesh. So because you can't just ignore a human being, you can't deem them unworthy, it's important to spend time helping students that otherwise get left behind. And whether intentional or not, a lot of the students, whenever they talk to me, they have so many mental barriers of feeling like they aren't worthy, like they can't do it, like no one cares whether they fail or not, and so they fail. Um, and to me, like, that is a gross violation of Jewish ethics, uh, and so that's part of why I do that. This trust in an ethic that comes from a single God was revolutionary. This did not exist before the Jewish people. And their commitment to this single source, to this truth, although they see it differently, has created a group of people that are so resilient, so foundational, to most of the world religions that, that most of the world belong to, those being Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Um, it's amazing. I mean, it truly is amazing. If you look at the story of the Jews after Moses, which I would ballpark around 1500, you could probably move that up on your timeline 100 or 200 years, is the arrival of King David. And the uniqueness of King David was that he was able to rule over a united Israel. And 
this was something that allowed Israel to prosper. There were commonly two factions in old Israel, a northern territory and a southern territory. So the southern territory was, was Judah, um, which was usually, I don't know, stronger or more prosperous. There are questions, of course, about the archaeological validity of all of these things. There are some unique findings that have occurred in recent history that refer to the Jewish people in this area of the world, and they're thousands of years old. This is a picture of the Meshastili, which is dated about 850 B.C., and there's another stele that was found that's dated about 830 B.C., and these two items both refer to what scholars interpret as the House of David. Now, David is ruling around a 1,000 years before Christ, the most significant event that occurs between David and Jesus is the Babylonian exile. And I'm going to wrap this up in two minutes because I'm already at 7.30. And I want you guys to get on with your night. But I want to underscore the significance of this. This actually occurs, I've got it at 600 B.C. It's probably 586 B.C., but it occurs over a number of years. This is a really big deal. Because the Jews had been in this space for a long time, although warring kind of among themselves and fighting back other people and losing and gaining. But when they're exiled by the Babylonians in around 586 BC, one of the things that scholars describe is that they decided at that time they were going to have to write down this, the Torah, because they realized they were very vulnerable to this oral tradition that they had been passing down in this way, uh, they were vulnerable to it being eliminated. And so they wanted a record of it. Now, what does that mean for the rest of us who rely on the Torah and make it part of our Bible? Mainline scholarship would tell you it means that the Bible was probably first compiled and written in 586, which means that it wasn't written down all at once by Moses. Now, you'll find people in both the Christian and the Judaic tradition who disagree with that statement. Um, but most mainline scholarship dates the compilation of documents coming from different sources to form the first five books of the Bible as having occurred after the Babylonian exile, which doesn't mean they're not legitimate. It doesn't mean that they're not accurate. It does mean they've been passed down for hundreds, if not thousands, of years orally before they made it to writing. But I offer that to you for consideration. Now, after the exile, we're almost done. One of the next significant events is that the Jews are essentially given their land back when the Persians come in and the Persians have a victory over the Babylonians. There's all kinds of fighting that occurs in this area of the world, well, in all areas of the world. And so There'll be victors, there'll be losers, people will win, they'll take land, they'll lose, they'll be enslaved. But when the Persians come in, they give the autonomy essentially back to the Jews who restore their temple, which had been destroyed in the Babylonian exile. And things roll around pretty well. The Greeks are a major influence on the Jews, which all of us have to know and respect. So just take inventory of this, because when the Greeks come in, the Jews and Greeks have a very good relationship. In fact, it becomes so cozy that there's a kind of Hellenistic revolt by the Maccabeans um, a couple of hundred years before the arrival of Christ. And the conflict that occurs here, I want you to think about this, is an internal conflict. 
It's a conflict that occurs within the Jewish community because one group within the Jewish community is moving in this direction, accepting uh, the influence of Greeks and maybe um, um, and allowing that more than another group thinks they should. And it becomes so significant that there's a revolution within their own community. That revolution eventually gets resolved, although not without it being fairly bloody. And after that occurs, you have the arrival of the Romans. And we start to get into the period that we all know as the period of Christ. Just a quick footnote, I'm basically done. In 70 AD, that second temple is destroyed by the Romans. And there's a major revolution that occurs a couple of times over the next 75 years that leads to massive death and destruction of the Jewish people by the Romans who are heavily persecuting them. And that occurrence within 200 years after the birth and death of Christ leads to a Jewish diaspora in which the Jews move into Northern Africa and into Europe, eventually into North America. This is... 2,000 years of history in what has now been too long of a time, so I'm cutting it down. But here's what I want you to think about. <laughs> I've probably said way too much. I just couldn't figure out how to wrap all of this up in 30 minutes. This story of our brothers and sisters in faith should remind us, number one, of where we come from and who started all of this. It should give us an opportunity to pause and show great respect for the people, our grandparents, if you will, whose house we visit when we open that Bible. It doesn't mean that Christians can't have their own interpretation. In fact, Christians were just a sect of Judaism in the first hundred years after Christ. But it, it does mean that we should have thing and some knowledge of what the history of Judaism is because it is, in fact, a shared history. And it tells us something that all of us should take to heart in the year 2021. That if we are to stay together, if the things that we think are important, the things that bind us together in faith, in culture, in community, we will have to work to make that happen. The kind of resiliency that the Jewish people have shown to keep their culture and their faith intact over the last 4,000 years is nothing short of incredible. And so while we look around this week and we see all kinds of things happening in our own country, I know it's not our, our faith, but in our own country, that seem incredibly disturbing. Just remember, we're not the first people to have walked this path. And if it means enough to us, we will have to work. We will have to sacrifice. We will have to try to stay together for a greater good and a greater truth. So, Here's the last thing I have to offer. I know I'm way over. 
I was trying. I was really trying. I thought I was going to make it. I'm the worst. I asked Rabbi Block, and this is the last thing I'll show you, what is the relevance? Why are we even doing this? Why would we study religion in books that are 4,000 years old, stories that are 4,000 years old, you know? Why, why even bother? And here was her answer, which I'll leave you with for this week and invite you back. I'll try to make it within the hour cutoff next week as we talk more about the theology between Judaism and Christianity. What is the relevance of Judaism in 2021? What's the relevance of a faith that is thousands of years old? Many of the problems in human life, perhaps all of the real problems, are thousands of years old. By studying the struggles and the answers of our ancestors and the responses that Jews have had over the millennia, we can better figure out how to proceed with our own lives. And perhaps in the best case scenario, not repeat some of the mistakes of history and to repeat some of what we may have gotten right in the past. It's not like everything we did was 